0: volume two chapter five the last man this is a LibriVox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org recording by Larry Maddox the last man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley volume two chapter five some disorder had surely crept into the course of the elements, destroying their benignant influence. The wind, prince of air, raged through his kingdom, lashing the sea into fury, and subduing the rebel earth into some sort of obedience. The god sends down his angry plagues from high, famine and pestilence in heaps they die. Again in vengeance of his wrath he falls, on their great host and breaks their tottering walls, arrests their navies on the ocean's plain, and whelms their strength with mountains of the main. Their deadly power shook the flourishing countries of the south, and during winter even we in our northern retreat began to quake under their ill effects. That fable is unjust, which gives the superiority to the sun over the wind. Who has not seen the lightsome earth, the balmy atmosphere, and basking nature become dark, cold, and ungenial, when the sleeping wind has awoke in the east, or when the dun clouds thickly veil the sky, while the exhaustless stores of rain are poured down, until the dank earth refusing to imbibe the superabundant moisture, it lies in pools on the surface. When the torch of day seems like a meteor to be quenched, who has not seen the cloud-stirring north arise? The streaked blue appear, and soon an opening made in the vapors in the eye of the wind, through which the bright azure shines. The clouds become thin an arc is formed, forever rising upwards, till, the universal cope being unveiled, the sun pours forth its rays, reanimated and fed by the breeze. Then mighty art thou, O wind, to be throned above all other vice of nature's power. Whether thou comest destroying from the east or pregnant with elementary life from the west, Thee the clouds obey, the sun is subservient to Thee, the shoreless ocean is Thy slave. Thou sweepest over the earth and oaks, the growth of centuries, submit to Thy viewless axe. The snowdrift is scattered on the pinnacles of the Alps, the avalanche thunders down their valleys. Thou holdest the keys of the frost, and canst first chain and then set free the streams, Under thy gentle governance, the buds and leaves are born. They flourish, nursed by thee. Why dost thou howl thus, O wind, by day and by night? For four long months thy roarings have not ceased. The shores of the sea are strewn with wrecks. Its nil, welcoming surface has become impassable. The earth has shed her beauty in obedience to thy command. The frail balloon dares no longer sail on the agitated air. Thy ministers, the clouds, deluge the land with rain. Rivers forsake their banks. The wild torrent tears up the mountain path, plain and wood. And verdant dell are despoiled of their loveliness. Our very cities are wasted by thee. Alas, what will become of us? It seems as if the giant waves of ocean and vast arms of the sea were about to wrench the deep-rooted island from its center and cast it, a ruin and a wreck, upon the fields of the Atlantic. What are we, the inhabitants of this globe, least among the many that people infinite space? Our minds embrace infinity. The visible mechanism of our being is subject merest accident. Day by day we are forced to believe this. He whom a scratch has disorganized, he who disappears from apparent life under the influence of the hostile agency at work around us, had the same powers as I. I also am subject to the same laws." In the face of all this, we call ourselves lords of the creation, welders of the elements, masters of life and death, and we allege in excuse of this arrogance that though the individual is destroyed, man continues forever. Thus, losing our identity, that of which we are chiefly conscious, we glory in the continuity of our species and learn to regard death without terror. But when any whole nation becomes the victim of the destructive powers of exterior agents, then indeed man shrinks into insignificance. He feels his tenure of life insecure, his inheritance on earth cut off. I remember after having witnessed the destructive effects of a fire, I could not even behold a small one in a stove without a sensation of fear The mounting flames had curled around the building as it fell and was destroyed. They insinuated themselves into the substances about them, and the impediments to their progress yielded at their touch. Could we take integral parts of this power and not be subject to its operation? Could we domesticate a cub of this wild beast and not fear its growth and maturity? Thus we begin to feel with regard to many visaged death let loose on the chosen districts of our fair habitation and above all with regard to the plague we feared the coming summer nations bordering on the already infected countries begin to enter upon serious plans for the better keeping out of the enemy we, a commercial people, were obliged to bring such schemes under consideration. And the question of contagion became matter of earnest disquisition. That the plague was not what is commonly called contagious, like the scarlet fever or extinct smallpox, was proved. It was called an epidemic. But the grand question was, Was still unsettled of how this epidemic was generated and increased. If infection depended upon the air, the air was subject to infection. As, for instance, a typhus fever has been brought by ships to one seaport town, yet the very people who brought it there were incapable of communicating it in a town more fortunately situated. But how are we to judge of airs? and pronounce, in such a city plague will die unproductive. In such another, nature has provided for it a plentiful harvest. In the same way, individuals may escape 99 times and receive the death blow at the hundredth, because bodies are sometimes in a state to reject the infection of malady, and at others, thirsty imbibe it. These reflections made our legislators pause before they could decide on the laws to be put in force. The evil was so widespread, so violent and immedicable that no care, no prevention could be judged superfluous, which even added a chance to our escape. These were questions of prudence. There was no immediate necessity for an earnest caution. England was still secure. France, Germany, Italy, and Spain were interposed, walls yet without a breach between us and the plague. Our vessels truly were the sport of winds and waves, even as Gulliver was the toy of the Brobdingnagians. But we on our stable abode could not be hurt in life or limb by these eruptions of nature. We could not fear, we did not, yet a feeling of awe, a breathless sentiment of wonder, a painful sense of the degradation of humanity was introduced into every heart. Nature, our mother and her friend had turned on us, a brow of menace. She showed us plainly that though she permitted us to assign her laws and subdue her apparent powers, yet if she put forth a finger, we must quake. She could take out our globe, fringed with mountains girded by atmosphere containing the condition of our being, and all that man's mind could invent or his force achieve, she could take the ball in her hand and cast it into space where life would be drunk up, and man and all his efforts forever annihilated. These speculations were rife among us, yet not the less we proceeded in our daily occupations and our plans, whose accomplishment demanded the lapse of many years. No voice was heard telling us to hold. When foreign distresses came to be felt by us through the channels of commerce, we set ourselves to apply remedies. Subscriptions were made for the immigrants and merchants bankrupt by the failure of trade. The English spirit awoke to its full activity and as it had ever done set itself to resist the evil and to stand in the breach which diseased nature had suffered chaos and death to make in the bounds and banks which had hitherto kept them out at the commencement of summer we began to feel that the mischief which had taken place in distant countries was greater than we had at first suspected quito was destroyed by an earthquake Mexico laid waste by the united effects of storm, pestilence, and famine. Crowds of immigrants inundated the west of Europe, and our island had become the refuge of thousands. In the meantime, Ryland had been chosen protector. He had sought this office with eagerness under the idea of turning his whole forces to the suppression of the privileged orders of our community. His measures were thwarted and his schemes interrupted by this new state of things. Many of the foreigners were utterly destitute and their increasing numbers at length forbade a recourse to the usual modes of relief. Trade was stopped by the failure of the interchange of cargoes usual between us and America, India, Egypt and Greece. A sudden break was made to the routine of our lives. In vain, our protector and his partisans sought to conceal this truth. In vain, day after day, he appointed a period for the discussion of the new laws concerning hereditary rank and privilege. In vain, he endeavored to represent the evil as partial and temporary. These disasters came home to so many bosoms and through the various channels of commerce were carried so entirely into every class and division of the community that of necessity they became the first question in the state the chief subjects to which we must turn our attention can it be true each asked the other with wonder and dismay that whole countries are laid waste whole nations annihilated by these disorders in nature the vast cities of america the fertile plains of hindostan the crowded abodes of the Chinese are menaced with utter ruin. Where late the busy multitudes assembled for pleasure or profit, now only the sound of wailing and misery is heard. The air is empoisoned, and each human being inhales death, even while in youth and health their hopes are in the flower. We called to mind the plague of thirteen forty eight when it was calculated that a third of mankind had been destroyed. As yet, Western Europe was uninfected. Would it always be so? Oh yes, it would, countrymen. Fear not. In the still and cultivated wilds of America, what wonder that among its other giant destroyers, plague should be numbered. It is of old a native of the East, sister of the tornado, the earthquake, and the simoon. moon Child of the sun, nursling of the tropics, it would expire in these climes. It drinks the dark blood of the inhabitant of the south, but it never feasts on the pale-faced Celt. If perchance some stricken Asiatic came among us, plague dies with him, uncommunicated and innoxious. Let us weep for our brethren, though we can never experience their reverse. Let us lament over and assist the children of the garden of the earth. Late we envied their abodes, their spicy groves, fertile plains, and abundant loveliness. But in this mortal life, extremes are always matched. The thorn grows with the rose, the poison tree, and the cinnamon mingle their boughs. Persia with its cloth of gold, marble halls, and infinite wealth is now a tomb. The tent of the Arab is fallen in the sands and his horse spurns the ground unbridled and unsaddled. The voice of lamentation fills the valley of Kashmir. Its dells and woods, its cool fountains and gardens of roses are polluted by the dead. In Circassia and Georgia, The spirit of beauty weeps over the ruin of its favorite temple, the form of woman. Our own distresses, though they were occasioned by the fictitious reciprocity of commerce, increased in due proportion. Bankers, merchants, and manufacturers, whose trade depended on exports and interchange of wealth, became bankrupt. Such things, when they happen singly, affect only the immediate parties. But the prosperity of the nation was now shaken by frequent and extensive losses. Families bred in opulence and luxury were reduced to beggary. The very state of peace in which we gloried was injurious. There were no means of employing the idol or of sending any overplus population out of the country. Even the source of colonies was dried up. For in New Holland, Van Diemen's Land, and the Cape of Good Hope, plague raged. Oh, for some mechanical vial to purge unwholesome nature and bring back the earth to its accustomed health. Ryland was a man of strong intellects and quick and sound decision in the usual course of things, but he stood aghast at the multitude of evils that gathered around us? Must he tax the land in interest to assist our commercial population? To do this, he must gain the favor of the chief landholders, the nobility of the country, and these were his vowed enemies. He must conciliate them by abandoning his favorite scheme of equalization. He must confirm them in their manorial rights. He must sell his cherished plans for the permanent good of his country for temporary relief. He must aim no more at the dear object of his ambition. Throwing his arms aside, he must, for present ends, give up the ultimate object of his endeavors. He came to Windsor to consult with us. Every day added to his difficulties the arrival of fresh vessels with immigrants, the total cessation of commerce. The starving multitude that thronged around the palace of the Protectorate were circumstances not to be tampered with. The blow was struck. The aristocracy obtained all they wished and they subscribed to a 12-months bill which levied 20% on all the rent rolls of the country. Calm was now restored to the metropolis and to the populous cities before driven to desperation and we returned to the consideration of distant calamities, wondering if the future would bring any alleviation to their excess. It was August, so there could be small hope of relief during the heats. On the contrary, the disease gained virulence, while starvation did its accustomed work. Thousands died unlamented, for beside the yet warm corpse the mourner was stretched made mute by death on the 18th of this month news arrived in london that the plague was in france and italy these tidings were at first whispered about town but no one dared express aloud the soul-quailing intelligence when any one met a friend in the street he only cried as he hurried on you know while the other, with an ejaculation of fear and horror, would answer, What will become of us? At length it was mentioned in the newspapers. The paragraph was inserted in an obscure part. We regret to state that there can be no longer a doubt of the plague having been introduced at Leghorn, Genoa, and Marseilles. No word of comment followed and Reader made his own fearful one. We were as a man who hears that his house is burning and yet hurries through the streets, borne along by a lurking hope of a mistake till he turns the corner and sees his sheltering roof enveloped in a flame. Before it had been a rumor but now in words unerasable, in definite and undeniable print, the knowledge went forth. Its obscurity of situation rendered it the more conspicuous. The diminutive letters grew gigantic to the bewildered eye of fear. They seemed graven with a pen of iron, impressed by fire, woven in the clouds, stamped on the very front of the universe. The English, whether travelers or residents, came pouring in one great revulsive stream. Back on their own country and with them crowds of Italians and Spaniards, our little island was filled even to bursting. At first an unusual quantity of specie made its appearance with the immigrants, but these people had no means of receiving back into their hands what they spent among us. With the advance of summer and the increase of distemper, rents were unpaid and their remittances failed them. It was impossible to see these crowds of wretched perishing creatures, late nurslings of luxury, and not stretch out a hand to save them. As at the conclusion of the 18th century, the English unlocked their hospitable store for the relief of those driven from their homes by political revolution. So now they were not backward in affording aid to the victims of a more widespreading calamity. We had many foreign friends whom we eagerly sought out and relieved from dreadful penury. Our castle became an asylum for the unhappy A little population occupied its halls. The revenue of its possessor, which had always found a mode of expenditure congenial to his generous nature, was now attended to more parsimoniously, that it might embrace a wider portion of utility. It was not, however, money except partially, but the necessities of life that became scarce. It was difficult to find an immediate remedy. The usual one of imports was entirely cut off. In this emergency, to feed the very people to whom we had given refuge, we were obliged to yield to the plow and to the mattock, our pleasure grounds and parks. Livestock diminished sensibly in the country from the effects of the great demand in the market. Even the poor deer are and protégés were obliged to fall for the sake of worthier pensioners. The labor necessary to bring the lands to this sort of culture employed and fed the outcasts of the diminished manufactories. Adrian did not rest only with the exertions he could make with regard to his own possessions. He addressed himself to the wealthy of the land. He made proposals in Parliament, little adapted to please the rich, but his earnest pleadings and benevolent eloquence were irresistible. To give up their pleasure grounds to the agriculturist, to diminish sensibly the number of horses kept for the purposes of luxury throughout the country, were means obvious but unpleasing. Yet to the honor of the English be it recorded that although natural dis- inclination made them delay a while. Yet when the misery of their fellow creatures became glaring, an enthusiastic generosity inspired their decrees. The most luxurious were the, often the first to part with their indulgencies. As is common in communities, a fashion was set. The high born ladies of the country would have deemed themselves disgraced if they had now enjoyed what they before called a necessary, the ease of a carriage. Chairs, as in olden time, and Indian palanquins were introduced for the infirm, but else it was nothing singular to see females of rank going on foot to places of fashionable resort. It was more common for all who possessed landed property to secede to their estates, attended by whole troops of the indigent to cut down their woods to erect temporary dwellings, and to portion out their parks, parterres, and flower gardens to necessitous families. Many of these of high rank in their own countries, now with hoe in hand, turned up the soil. It was found necessary at last to check the spirit of sacrifice, and to remind those whose generosity proceeded to lavish waste that until the present state of things became permanent, of which there was no likelihood, it was wrong to carry change so far as to make a reaction difficult. Experience demonstrated that in a year or two pestilence would cease. It were well that in the meantime we should not have destroyed our fine breeds of horses, or have utterly changed the face of the ornamented portion of the country. It may be imagined that things were in a bad state indeed, before this spirit of benevolence could have struck such deep roots. The infection had now spread in the southern provinces of France, but that country had so many resources in the way of agriculture, that the rush of population from one part of it to another and its increase through foreign immigration was less felt than with us. The panic struck appeared of more injury than disease and its natural concomitants. Winter was hailed a general and never failing physician. The embrowning woods the swelling rivers, the evening mists, the morning, morning frosts were welcomed with gratitude. The effects of purifying cold were immediately felt, and the lists of mortality abroad w- were curtailed each week. Many of our visitors left us. Those whose homes were far in the south fled delightedly from our northern winter and sought their native land, Secure of plenty, even after their fearful visitation. We breathed again. What the coming summer would bring, we knew not. But the present months were our own, and our hopes of a cessation of pestilence were high. End of Volume 2, Chapter 5. Recording by Larry Maddox, Salt Lake City, www.rel. USA.com.